Check, check. Good morning. Good to see everybody today on this beautiful sunny day. A lot going on today at Grace Covenant Church, right? Um, so we'll get started with the Sunday school class. Then we have church. And then afterwards, we invite you to remind you to invite you to stand outside with us for 45 minutes to an hour as we just speak the truth about life and uh, show that there's people that believe that, that infants are humans. All right. Other than that, we then have a, he's not here, is he? Surprise birthday party for Henry Armstrong. That's, one, that's not really us putting it on, but we've all been invited. That's at the lodge, Harvest home where we have our picnic that'll be uh where henry's party is at 1 30 so you can stop by there if you want and then right back here at six for our prayer meeting tonight uh joint prayer meeting with faith fellowship um and some others may be joining us to pray for the election and again pray that god's will will be done that eyes will be open so that's a big day so let's get that day started right now with existentialism what a word right what a word so so far again we've talked about and we're going to see it today especially worldview is important because a worldview is how you view the world, remember? And, it's, and, and how you view the world determines your values and your values determine your behavior. So really, a worldview is, everybody, everybody's, everybody's got one for one thing. They may not even know that or they may not call it that, but everybody has presuppositions of how they view the world. They, they have some, some starting point for looking at where we came from. Is there anybody in control uh, up there? Uh, uh, can we do what we want? Are we just animals? You know, all these things are going to be reflective of your world view. And we've looked at many of these. And, and, and unlike many of the other philosophies or ideologies we looked at within that secularism family, uh, such things like pragmatism and humanism and all, all those things, those all deal with like abstract, uh, big ideas like metaphysics, right? The idea of the supernatural is, you know, is there a God? How can we know there's a God? Epistemology is another word used in this, this idea of philosophy and worldviews. And that's just the, the idea of how can we know and how do we think and, and what is knowledge and where does knowledge come from? So those are pretty big abstract ideas that most of those deal with. Existentialism, however, is a lot different. Uh, existentialism is probably the slipperiest for one thing of all of these ideas is Tim and I were talking really if people are honest nobody really knows how to define existentialism it's just a fun word to say have you ever heard the word existential or existentialism go ahead and raise your hands yes several people at least heard the word Um, and I think you're going to see uh, as with all these worldviews, glimpses of this in our society and by the way uh, again it's it's I know we take each of these views like humanism or secularism or uh, naturalism, pragmatism, and we, we define them as though everybody adheres to just that one thing strictly. But really, it's like a potpourri, if you will. There's a mixing of worldviews with most people. They have a little humanism here, uh, a little pragmatism here, and we're going to find out today that some of us have a little existentialism mixed in. So the idea then of this thing called existentialism, unlike the other philosophies that deal with these big abstract questions, existentialism deals with the condition of human existence. Human existence. And you actually see that in the very name, existentialism. What's the first word you see? Exist. Exist. And so this is one reason I think that existentialism is so prevalent in, in movie making and the arts and our society um, because it kind of deals with 
the condition of our human existence. Now, here, here's uh, a way to kind of get this. In, in basically, it began in, in the 19th century, like many of these philosophies, and men like Frederick Nietzsche, we've heard of Frederick Nietzsche, we'll talk about him in a minute, um, but he really didn't gain, gain much momentum until the 20th century. So think of this, before World War I and World War II, man was pretty optimistic about himself. Pragmatism was reigning, right? We can fix all of our problems. Uh, technology was booming, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution and, and technology. And so man's thinking, hey, this world, we're going to do it. Humanism, right? We are the gods of our own destiny. And uh, naturalism, th there is no other god but us. So we can fix this. This is wonderful. Things are going very well. Thank you very much. And then war. <laughs> And World War II, and especially after World War II, the, the world was just basically collectively slapped in the face. They were awakened to the atrocities, to the real depravity of humankind. I mean, just to see the, 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 the pictures coming out of Germany of the concentration camps and just to hear the horrific tales of how men kill men in battle coming out of uh, the, the Pacific campaign and, and just the atrocities of that. Then you had famines and corruption in government. All these things began and people began to realize, you know what? Man is not perfect. The world's not just going to be uh, better and better. As a matter of fact, it's pretty doom and gloom. And that is really the heart of existentialism. Um, there was kind of a prevailing feeling of doom and gloom. So here is the main idea of existentialism. Okay, so write this down. The main idea of existentialism is existence, existence precedes essence. Jean-Paul Sartre uh, was the one who pretty much coined that phrase. And this idea, existence, or, or, or just the fact that you're breathing, just the fact that you are, is more important than who and what you are, your very nature. Um, and, and really, that idea goes directly against a biblical view of creation. And, it, and it's very, very hard. I mean, it's the exact opposite, as a matter of fact. The essence, um, and here's the biblical view. The, the biblical view, the traditional biblical view, says that the essence or the nature of a thing is more fundamental, more fundamental and important than its existence or the mere fact of its being. So I hope, I know, hang in here with me, but this is, you're going to see how this is vital. If basically our importance is in our existence, the fact that we're breathing, the fact that we are, and that's it, not how we're made, our, our very nature, our very essence, if that's secondary, just the fact that we exist is most important, that there's a problem there. Here's the point. What gives humans value, right? What gives humans value and purpose is not that we exist. Warthogs exist. Poison ivy exists, right? You see what I'm saying? So what gives the human his purpose, his worth, his value? And so as we look at Genesis 1, 26 through 27, it's there on your sheets, this is where we go. Again, this is where humans must go for their worldview. Who are we? Who made us? What's my purpose? Why am I here? Right? Again, existentialism, humanism, uh, pragmatism, all these other isms 
refuse to acknowledge God in the equation and therefore look to themselves for the answers to all those things. But here's what the Bible says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I mean, there is hours worth of preaching right from this text to address our, our current culture and the existentialism and the other isms that the world is looking at as far as finding their value and their purpose. I mean, man, so the, the, the first one truly goes against this, this twisted, reversed idea of creation itself. God lays down the order right here, and the crown of God's creation, the crowning achievement of God's creation is mankind, humans. Not the earth itself, not Mother Earth, quote, quote, right? Mother Earth. Today in our world, if you haven't noticed this, the earth itself, nature itself, has more value and rights than human beings. And that's a satanic underlying. Uh, that, that's his plan, to reverse everything that God has done and to change that around. But God is so plain here. Those people who believe, well, animals have more rights than humans. The earth would be better off without humans in it. I mean, the, the very radical environmentalists, they, they would feel this way. When a, when a spotted baby eagle's egg has more protective rights by the government than a human baby in its mother's womb, we have twisted things around. When people are saying things like, well, the earth would be much better off without humans. Humans are the problem. We're like a virus to this earth. They really worship. They literally worship the earth. That's a naturalist approach. There is literal worship of the earth saying that this is the sovereign. The earth was here long before us. It will be here, here long after us. Have you heard phrases like that? We are the, 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 the blots on society. That is a humanistic approach. That is this, this kind of this uh, existential approach. And yet the Bible is very plain. That is not the case. Man is and always was God's crowning achievement and creation as far as the, the, the creation order. And man is to have dominion. Number one, number one, number one. The reason that we have value, this is answering the existentialist. The reason that we have such value is because we're made in the image of God. That's our very essence. So it's not just our existence that gives us the, our most value. It's who and what we are. We are made in the image of God, in his likeness. And we are to have dominion over all the fish, the birds, the heavens, uh, uh, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, and over all the earth period. So again, the earth was made for mankind, not vice versa. And it's okay. And again, now don't get me wrong. There are those who may go the other extreme and say, let's just, let's just abuse the earth. Let's just not have any environmental friendliness. No, that's not the case either. We're good stewards. We are to steward the earth. We're to care for the earth. Yes. But we are to use the earth, all of the minerals and the things in the earth, the animals, the, the, the other products of this earth were given so that man can thrive and live out his purpose to glorify God. 
So I think it's so important, that foundation right there, that shows you right there how the, a biblical worldview is miles apart, just the beginning of our worldview, that God, there is a God, first and foremost, and that God made us, and that we're made in his image, and that he's given us a purpose to subdue this earth. That is miles apart from those who think we're accidents. We just happen as a biological accident of nature, and we have no real purpose and no real meaning except that here we are. And, and so that's, I hope you, I'm getting, okay, let's get back to the, the, the list here. No, let's notice in the, in the next few minutes here some of the guiding principles of existentialism, some of the unintended byproducts of such an ideology, some of the bad consequential ideologies that come from this idea of existentialism. First one is the individual is more important than the group. So that's the first thing there. Guiding principles of existentialism tell us that the individual is more important than the group. And this is so opposed, again, to what the Bible tells us our purpose is. Our purpose is, number one, not about us. <laughs> the reason we were created was not for us. In the first place, we were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then all through His Word, He tells us how we do that. We do that by thinking of others as being more important than ourselves, right? We do that as loving our neighbor, right? Just as we would love ourselves, but we're looking to others. We're serving others. This, this was the prevailing uh, kind of Protestant ideology in America that we were founded on, if you remember. And that, that, that idea that community is important, that helping my neighbor is important, that, that as long as my neighbor does well, I'll do well. If our community is doing well, we're all doing well. Does that make sense? That, that's, that's the idea of, of a Christian worldview and it even was seen, I think, so plainly in World War II. That generation that understood, it's, I'm not the most important thing, but all of us together, right? The community of, of people, human beings made in the image of God for his glory. And, and collectively, that's what I believe gave America this great advantage, our worldview. That, that all men are, yeah, I know it sounds kind of weird, you're going out and shooting those men, but still, we are collectively protecting righteousness. We're protective, we're collectively, uh, the, the righteous war idea, I think they call it. Just, Just war, yes. So that idea is that we, we are coming together for a purpose bigger than our individual selves. And, and you saw that in the work effort at home by those who were still at home in the factories. And you saw people conserving things. Uh, tires and different things were just, you, you weren't to uh, you overuse certain products, uh, different metals. It was all donated. So the whole country had this idea that the group is more, is more important than just the individual. And yet existentialism came along and said, well, forget that. That didn't work out too well. World's a bad place. It's all about me. I only care about me. I'm more important than anybody else. And then the next one is this. The only valid source of truth is my individual experience. <laughs> Since I'm the most important thing in the universe, <laughs> therefore I am the arbiter of truth. The only source of real truth is what I experience myself, my individual experience. That's amazing. Now, again, as I'm, as I'm saying these things, I hope that you're looking at our society and thinking, where do we see this today? Do, does any of this sound remotely familiar with the behavior of current society? The individual is most important. The only source of truth is what I experience. 
your truth is good for you. Remember, this goes back to pragmatism now. They all kind of connect, like I said, to the idea that, oh, that's your truth. Okay, that's your truth, but that's not truth for me. Only what I experience is true for me. Then you've got this idea. The third thing here is that there are no norms because there are no absolutes. There are no norms because there are no absolutes. And this is vital in our society today to see that this is why people cannot grasp. Again, remember that we speak, we really do speak to each other in this world through worldviews. <laughs> when you talk to people at work, when you talk to neighbors at the fence, uh, when you're in the community and you strike up a conversation, many times we're communicating on two different levels, totally different starting points in our worldview, therefore drastically different ending points in our ideas and, and what we're talking about. Does that make sense? And so when, when we're, we're experiencing it today, folks, the idea of speaking that there is a norm, that there's an absolute standard of life is totally foreign to many people in our society. Norms, absolutes, no, there is nothing like that. It's whatever I want it to be. If, if this is convenient for me and I experience happiness from this, then that's truth. <laughs> that's our society, correct? And that's why it's so difficult for us as Christians to talk about the values, the morals, the truth of God's law. And again, just a side note goes with our sermon today. That's why only the gospel of Jesus Christ will truly change somebody. We really aren't in this business, folks, as Christians, of convincing people of our ideologies, of our morality only. That's not, our job is not to somehow go out there and convince people simply that life begins at conception, or simply, simply that murder is wrong, that, 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 or, or simply that marriage is between a, a man and a woman. That's not our main goal. We stand for those truths because we're Christians. Jesus said, how can you call me Lord and not do my commandments? So we call him Lord and we obey him and we stand for his truth and his principles. And sometimes that does bring the attack of people. But our number one goal must be to tell them the good news about Jesus. Only the gospel, the work of Christ for them on the cross, will transform their mind and heart. Just like it is you and I. But having said that, let's continue here. I think it's interesting when you, when you think about this whole idea. Remember at the beginning, we said Francis Schaeffer uh, said, quoting, well, not quoting, actually, it's the other way around. Uh, Nancy P uh, Piercy quotes Francis Schaeffer a lot. But in the book, Total Truth, which again, I recommend by Nancy Piercy, Total Truth, Nancy Piercy. Yeah, you give it a th two thumbs up, right? You love it. Anyway, um, Francis Schaeffer mentions that the Bible does not just contain truth. The Bible is total truth. It's God's word. All truth is his truth. God's truth is total truth. And as Christians, we, a worldview that we live in is to, is to say, our view of truth is whatever the scriptures say. Now I know, face it, we're gonna be accused of being cultic, <laughs> of being backwoods, being old fashioned, being Puritans, whatever they wanna kind of throw out there. But again, they're coming from a different view, right? There are no norms for most people in this world. 
There is no absolute truth. But here's the point. Absolute truth means perfect, final truth. No human can say that their, their own experience is absolute final evidence for anything. Does that make sense? We're just flawed human beings. Therefore, it must be a supreme, perfect, perfectly just, perfectly eternal being who is the arbiter of absolute, unchanging truth. Does that make sense? And that is God. And in his sovereignty, he's given us a book. And in that book, we find the very laws of God, the very truth of God. And we, as those who claim to follow Jesus, and here's where the rubber's going to meet the road in our century in the United States, those who claim to be Christians, followers of Christ, are now coming up against the part of following Christ. It was easy to name the name of Jesus for years in America. You can say you're a Christian. We can profess with our mouth, right? That part, we can confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. But have we really believed in our heart? Because that belief in our heart causes us to not just profess Jesus, but to obey him. And that's what's going to be the, the rub when we begin to obey God's commands and live them out in daily societal life. I think it's interesting to think of uh, what's happening right now with new house speaker or the new speaker of the house, Mike Johnson. I don't know if you're keeping up with this, but, and I don't know everything about this guy. Really, he was very much obscure for a while, just uh, kind of a lower ranking Republican uh, guy, but he is now the speaker of the house. And uh, very interesting to see a, a Christian who is more than just talk as far as saying, well, yeah, I, I'm a Christian, but standing consistently interview after interview and being berated by some of the progressives who, who are just going crazy. Um, I just got a little excerpt here I just want to read from an interview by uh, Jen Psaki. Jen Psaki was the former press secretary, um, I guess for Biden, correct? Yeah, that's who's there. Um, but look what she says as, she, as, as she's, 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 she's not interviewing him, but she's watching an interview. But here's what she says on her, her show. She's talking, she says, at first glance, Mike Johnson does not seem uh, very scary. I mean... He seems fine. If, 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 if nothing else, he wears a suit and has glasses, which he does. Looks like a clean-cut fella. Then she goes on to say these, these important words. How threatening can this guy really be? We'll have, uh, well, he gave us a clue in an interview this week. So she's already set this up with her view that this guy is threatening. But here's why. Mike Johnson in the interview was asked a question and he was responding to how he makes decisions and, and how he would govern. He says this, I am a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, we're curious, what does Mike Johnson believe about, well, any issue under the sun? And I said, well, go pick up the Bible off your shelf and read it. That's my worldview. Wow. To which Saki responds, you heard that right, folks. The Bible doesn't just inform his worldview. It is his worldview. And the idea is that's horrific. Somebody actually believes the whole Bible and they're living their life based on that. And, and so again, this is where we live, folks. This is the society where it's going to be harder and harder to just simply, and I'm not talking about being arrogant. I'm not talking about being angry or a combatant 
we are commanded the opposite. We are to speak the truth in love. And he even said that. Johnson went on to say, I don't know why people are so upset. Actually, the, the, the Christian view is good for the world because the first tenet tells us to love God with everything we have and love our neighbors. This is good for the world. This is, this is how we thrive. And yet, this is where it's going to come down. To us loving people. I'm talking about being loving, gentle, kind, caring, serving people who have a totally opposite lifestyle than we do. Uh, respecting them as image bearers of God. Yeah, that is the, the first approach that every Christian must have of another human being, period. And yet, as we lovingly and gently simply talk about the truth of God's word, just in a statement, hey, yeah, we believe marriage is between a man and a woman. You bigot, you angry hateophobe, hateophobe, or not, hate, no, you're not afraid of hate, you marriage phobe, whatever they're going to call us. It's going to happen. It, it, it is happening. And this is what Christ told us. This is what shouldn't be surprising. He said, oh, you know what? They hated me. They're going to hate you. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. They killed me. They're going to try to kill you. Now come, follow me. <laughs> what a call. What a call. The, the, again, the, we're being reminded, I think, in our culture like never before of our brothers and sisters in ancient cultures who knew that the call of the gospel the call, the invitation of the gospel is an invitation to come and die. And we, that's foreign to us now. Die to yourself, die to your own pleasures, die to your desires, but also possibly die as a result of the hatred that the enemy has for the truth of God's word. So I think, whew, I know it's, it's, it's heavy stuff, but this is what the church is for. We're to encourage one another to good works, right? So much more as we see the day approaching. That's why we're not to forsake this assembling of ourselves together so that we can encourage each other uh, as iron sharpens iron and continue to live faithfully for God with that worldview that honors him. Um, let me just take, hit, hit, hit one more thing very quickly. We got plenty of time. Look at that, man. <laughs> Let's look at the main theme of existentialism, though. I know many of these things we talked about are, are subsets of existentialism, but there is a main, a, a, a main theme of existentialism that, again, was made most prominent by Frederick Nietzsche in his teaching of nihilism. Um, you ever heard of nihilism or, or nihilism? And what is nil? What is the meaning of nil? Like if we say the score, right, right, it's zero, it's nothing, right? Nil, nothing. So that's exactly what this is, this idea that everything is nothing. <laughs> what a great idea. What, how encouraging, uh, Mr. Nietzsche. Nietzsche, by the way, is the great philosopher who gave us the great quote, God is dead, back in the day. And here's, here's, here's what this nihilism, it's spelled N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. And again, it, it, it basically says that humans live in this dimension only. There is nothing after death. This is it. And then to make it even more happy and exciting and joyful, there is no meaning to this human experience. <laughs> so there's nothing after death, and there is no meaning 
to this life that, that you're living right now. Nothing really matters. Freddie Mercury, nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. Amen. <laughs> Which is an existential statement, right? In a sense, life is doomed. Life is gloom. There is no real meaning. I'll do whatever I can now. But in the end, who cares? Nothing really matters. That, that's the heart and main theme of existentialism. So now you see, you wonder, you wonder then if this has permeated our culture for many years, why it is that there's so much depression, angst. Angst is another word that others have talked about, not just Christians, studying the idea of existentialism, saying that a whole society will be anxious. And we're not talking about the normal traditional anxieties. If somebody has a fear of closed spaces, and they're anxious about being in a box. That's called claustrophobia. That's a normal, we understand there's a causality for that, right? You have a cause that makes you anxious. Don't jump in a box, right? Do we understand that one? Fear of water, right? You don't get in the water, um, whatever. But the idea of existentialism was this, this, this pervading darkness, depression and gloom, angst, for no apparent reason that, that, that people live through. They just have this feeling of doom and gloom. And again, you wonder, of course, it's no surprise if the idea has been, well, there's nothing to look forward to after you die, and there's no purpose for your life right now. Everything's a meaningless misery. We're a bunch of Eeyores running around. Life is meaningless. You know, that kind of thing. So no wonder there is such brokenness and depression and anxiety. They're in the world, as the Bible says, without God and without hope. Because without God, <laughs> there is no hope. And so in conclusion then today, let's, let's notice some things real quick. Basically, again, if I had no purpose or value at birth, if, if life is just a meaningless misery, if I die and then nothing, again, no wonder there's so much pain and brokenness and hurt and then people doing crazy things because what's the matter? That's why, again, if you are a teacher in a public school this, at this point, and my wife, my wife still works in a, in a public school, kids have no reason to do anything. Well, there's no authority. There's no absolutes. It's what I want to do. I'm the individual is king, right? My experiences are all that matter. So I don't care what you tell me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. But again, this brokenness, this emptiness overall and that kind of a view is not the message of the Bible. So again, this is why it's so vital to have a biblical worldview, ground our ideology in what God says, not what we as humans perceive in ourselves. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says we're made in the very image of God and we're made with an errant value because of that. We have inherent value. So it's not this... I have no purpose. No, you are made in the image of God. As a human being, you have massive purpose to glorify the God of the universe. The Bible says that we were made for that purpose that goes beyond ourselves. Again, this, even lost people begin to understand that when you begin to live for others, it is so fulfilling than just living for yourself. That's how God made us and engineered us as humans. We will not have our full potential 
even as a lost human being made in the image of God, the very fact that you begin to do and act in the image of your creator brings peace of some sort. Again, not salvation, but purpose and meaning. And then the Bible promises this. The Bible promises that even though we all have sinned, we have fallen in Adam, and we are in a sin-cursed world, we can be made new and restored to that original purpose God has made for us in Christ, the new Adam, <laughs> the second Adam, right? That's the glorious news of the gospel. And that's why John 10, 9 through 11 is so important for our worldview, right? To see this is what the Bible says. Jesus says, I am the door. Man, there's so much that could be implied here and preached here about Jesus being the door, but it's all true. He's the door to truth. He's the door to purpose. He's the door to joy. He's the door to fulfillment. I'm the, he's, I'm the door. And then the skeptic will say, what door? Door to what? Door to everything. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But he, look what he goes on to say. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved Save from your brokenness, your emptiness, your purposelessness, your aimlessness, your emptiness, and, and your sin. And look what he says. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. What a beautiful picture. He's using this sheep analogy. He's the good shepherd. He's talking about all, all of us little lost sheep running around in this world trying to find our own way. He says, I'm the door. I'm the good shepherd. You come to me. I'll save you from yourself. I'll save you from your fear. I'll save you from your sin. And then you can go in and out freely into green pasture. Is that not beautiful? And that's what he says. This is the promise from God to his people. The thief, on the other hand, comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that's what the enemy has been doing for centuries. Through, again, these worldly ideologies, such as existentialism, and pragmatism and humanism. There is no God. You have no purpose. It's all about you. Live for yourself. It's the opposite. And that's what the thief does. And he's a thief and he's trying to kill and he's destroying. But again, we compare that to what God promises us. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. There's our hope. There's our trust. There's our focus. We continue to look to the promises of God in a world that tells us the complete opposite about ourselves. We look to this and see, no, there is one who loved me, who laid his life down for me, who has come to rescue me, and he has come to give me life and life abundant and this purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's who I am and what I am. You see, that'll cause us to live differently in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth and your goodness. We, we thank you, Father, that we have a solace to run to, a place where we can be re-energized, filled up with truth, and then sent back out into a world that has no hope. It's groping in darkness, and yet you sent us out as lights in this world. So give us the grace to trust you, to love you, to obey you, and honor you with our lives. We thank you for what you're going to do through this church here in this city for your glory until you come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Thanks, everybody, and now let's enjoy some fellowship.